that is Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his, fa- his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained a brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be lost in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For, there, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. On January 1st, 1982, Kevin Tunnell was not where he ought to be, not drinking what he ought to, and decided to get behind the wheel of a car in the early morning on that New Year's Day and got behind the wheel of a car and smashed his car into another car, killing 18-year-old Kelly, or excuse me, not Kelly, uh, Susan Herzog. And as he killed her, he then became a product of uh, of the court system. And as he went to court, he was served some jail time and uh, continued to serve a little bit of jail time. But the parents of Susan Herzog were not finished, and they decided to take him to civil court where they sued him for about a million and a half dollars, and they won. However, the parents of Susan Herzog decided that what they were going to do is settle for $936. And the conditions of that $936 settlement were this. That every Friday, Kevin Tunnell had to write a check for $1 and drop it in the mailbox, sending it to the parents of this deceased girl. And he was to do this every single Friday until the year 2000. Some of y'all may be old enough to remember that story, and there was actually a movie made about it called Dead Drunk, and uh, directed, uh, created sometime about the mid-80s. And as Kevin started writing those checks every Friday, you know what he realized pretty quickly was he didn't want to write those checks anymore. Because as he wrote those checks, what happened was that he began to think seriously about uh, uh, that girl and about the damage that he had caused, and he began to think seriously about taking his own life. And, and so one day he decided to write all the rest of the checks and just send them all at once. And the parents said, no, that's not what's going to happen. You're going to send us one check every single Friday until the year 2000. And as he continued, sometimes he, he, he began to miss payments. He began to miss those checks. And the parents sent, uh, sent, him to, sent him to jail based upon his failure to comply with this court order. And he spent some six months in prison. But Kevin began to talk about the difficulty that it was to remain under this load. And the parents said, we don't want him to feel this load, but we want him to remember our daughter. We want him to remember our daughter. And so what they did, he continued all the way up until the year 2000, writing those checks every single Friday. And I wonder about forgiveness and stories like that based upon the fact of this. Brothers and sisters, as we live, there's not a single one of us that's ever going to escape hurt. That's just the reality of living in a world that's been fallen. That's just the reality of living in a world where sin has touched it. There's not a single one of us that's not going to be hurt and not going to be touched by hurt based upon something that either we've done or, in this instance, something somebody else has done. 
This young lady died because somebody drank and got behind the wheel of a car. Maybe you were hurt based upon the fact that somebody talked too much and said something they shouldn't have. Maybe you've been hurt just because somebody did something and it hurt you. There's not a single one of us that can deal with hurt and that can handle hurt in a way that really, well, is optimal in and of ourselves. Consider just for a moment as we get started with this lesson some ungodly ways that we deal with our hurt. One of the ones that I thought of first is silence. You hurt me, I'm going to put you in a box and I'm going to pretend I can't hear you. I'm going to do everything I can to avoid you and not say anything to you. And if I do and I am forced to say something to you, it's probably just going to be very short, very curt and then I'm going to get out of the way and I'm going to move along because I don't want to talk to you. I'm going to put you in this box and... You're going to have to deal with my silence. Sometimes people deal with ungodly hurts based upon distance. If I can put enough distance between you and me, then maybe I won't have to deal with this and maybe you can understand that there's something that's wrong that you've done to hurt me. And I'm going to put a lot of distance between you and I'm going to maybe even give you the silent treatment when I do see you. These are not mutually exclusive. But I'm going to put some distance between you and me so that I don't have to deal with you. Sometimes we deal with ungodly hurts based upon guilting somebody. I'm going to make sure that you know every single... I'm going to make you write letters. I'm going to make you write checks every Friday just so that you can know the hurt that you've inflicted on me and how badly it is that it hurts me. And every time that I see you, I may try and open that wound afresh. You cut me, I'm going to open it up again just just so you can watch me bleed. We guilt people. It's an ungodly way to deal with our hurt. Sometimes, just general ugliness. Just general ugliness. You hurt me, and so I'm going to hurt you back. And I'm going to be as ugly to you as I can possibly be, just so that you can know that I'm holding this guilt and this, I'm holding this debt over you, and you're not going to ever hear a kind word from me or a generous word. Ungodly ways we deal with our hurt. Sometimes, it may come out in small, petty ways. Passive aggressiveness, as the psychologists would call this. I'm going to find small, mean things to do to you just to make you hurt. And I want to watch you hurt. And whenever you've got uh, something bad that happens in your life, I'm going to be going, yes. I'm so glad that bad thing happened to you. I'm so glad that you had the the, the, uh, project blow up in your face. I'm so glad that you're dealing with those problems. And sometimes just being simply petty is an ungodly way to deal with our hurt. Friends, are any of these ways that Christians ought to behave? Are any of these things characteristics of somebody who is really truly following Jesus Christ faithfully? Because if there's not, surely you and I can see that we've got some growing to do in this regard. Every single one of us have some growing to do based upon the fact that there's just human nature that says when I hurt, I want to resort as a default to one of these things to make you hurt as much as I've hurt, as much as I've been hurt. And I want to treat you with as much ugliness as I possibly can because I want you to know my pain. I want you to write that check every week and I want you to make sure that you don't forget. Look at your Bible, please. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. I want to start there and then utilize the principles of the parable that Jesus tells immediately after this to notice some things about forgiveness. And where we're going to go first is talking about the flow of forgiveness. 
the flow of forgiveness. This is verses 15 to 20, by the way. And I want to do something just a little bit differently with this because this is a passage that perhaps we've heard for many, many years. And in fact, it's only about the first three verses that it gives the process or the flow of forgiveness. But I know that there are some people that their love language is visual, and that's the reason why I prepare PowerPoints every week. But I also know that there's some people that appreciate seeing this in diagram form. And so what I did was, I'm so nice, I made a flow chart based upon the passage here of Matthew 18, verses 15 and following. You can follow it there along on your line. The very first con uh, concept that Jesus introduces here in verse 15 is this. And this is what we call the terminus. That bubble is called a terminus. It means there's something that, uh, that starts or ends the process. And Jesus says, note there in your Bible, if your brother sins against you, there's the beginning of this. There is an acknowledgement of there being a hurt, a wrong, an injustice, something that needs to be done and something that's, that's, that started this whole process and this whole flow. And as you're starting the process, then we begin to introduce what we call a input or something that has a regard, a, a desired uh, or necessary action that needs to be taken. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, here's the first action, here's the first approach. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Can I begin by saying this? There are a lot of us that mess up this. Just these two simple aspects of just the acknowledgement and then the approach number one. We find a way to mess this up. You know why? Because we want to short circuit the process and say, again, if we're talking about Christians here, here's what I'm going to do. You sin against me, I'm going to go tell the elders. Ooh, I'm going to get you in trouble. It's like going to tell the principal. Oh, I'm going to get you in trouble. Oh, you're going to get it. Why is this the eldership that responds in this way? You need to go talk to that person about that. You need to go and take approach number one here from Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, and you need to go take care of this yourself. This is not a business for us as elders to sit and hear as far as judgment goes. This is a responsibility that if this person hurts you, you go and tell them their fault between you and them alone. That's biblical. That's the process. Don't immediately start looking for an entire authority and say, I want you to agree with me. You know what the elders are hearing if you go and talk to them? They're just hearing one side of the, the occasion. When you and that person know both sides and you know if there's a wrong that's been perpetrated against you and between you, you have a responsibility to go to them and they have a responsibility to go to you. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. But notice this. Then we come to a decision. A triangle, or a, sorry, that's a diamond shape. They ask the question, what was the desired result or what was the result? Did they listen to you? If yes, you gained your brother. Jesus says, here's what we're after. This is the end result. This is the desired result. That if they hear you, yes, and that's what we want. If just between you and him alone, you go and you talk to them. And if, you, if they've heard you, you've gained your brother. Hooray, the process is over. However, what we have to do is we have to take account for what happens to Jesus if they don't hear you. Here's the no. There's another input that's required. There's another action that's required. Input number two, approach number two. Then you take one or two more that every uh, word of the facts may be established. Here's me and my brother, and I'm going to him. I'm saying, brother, listen, you, you, you sinned against me. There's, an, it, there's a wrong that I feel, and there's something that you've done against me. Oh, I don't want to hear you. I don't want to listen to you. 
Then I go and I grab one or two more and I say, listen, I'm trying to win my brother. I'm trying to win him back and I'm trying to, to, to right this wrong. And, and he says, you take one or two more so that they can hear the entire case all laid out and understand that there's reconciliation that's involved. And that's our desired result. That's our end result. That's what we want more than anything else. So then we ask the question, did reconciliation happen? If yes, we go all the way to the answer, which is you've gained your brother. Isn't that the desired result? Don't you want to gain your brother back? Don't you want to have sweet fellowship again? Don't you want to have a, a forgiveness that's taken place? But we also have to account for what if he says no? I'm not going to hear you. No, I'm not going to listen. Then I've got to take another approach. Here's approach number three. Then you go and you tell it to the church. Can you imagine then somebody standing up on a pulpit, in the pulpit, and saying, Church, listen, I've tried to be reconciled with my brother, and I've tried to follow the process, and approach number one's failed, approach number two's failed. The last resort is that we want this brother to hear, and we want this brother to understand, and what I'm asking you to do is encourage them, and let's, let's go over to his house, and let's stand on his front lawn until, until he makes his life right. And you say, well, that's a little extreme. This is the process that Jesus gives. Why? Because it then becomes an issue for the church to say, here's a brother who's not forgiving like he ought to. What do we do as a church to help him try and learn the seriousness of this, this occasion, the seriousness of forgiveness, the flow and the way that it's supposed to happen? And the question becomes, again, Jesus gives us by implication, but if he hears you, you've gained your brother. The church has worked. We've done our job, and we're all together back in fellowship. That's the idea. But then the question becomes, Jesus has to deal with, what happens if the answer is no? If the answer is no, he says, then let him be treated by you as a heathen and as a tax collector. Notice some things about this just for a moment here in Matthew 15 through 20. By the way, this process is so important and it's so biblical that three times in the context, three, count them, circle them, underline them, three times in the context, Jesus invokes his authority and the authority of heaven based upon this process. You see it? Verses 17, verse 18, verse 19, or verse 18, 19, 20, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, that's not talking about worship. That's not giving you permission to go out and worship under a tree. That's saying that where you're agreeing about this process on heaven, it's got heaven behind it. Where you're doing this by the authority of Jesus, you have got his authority for doing what you're doing in this process. Andy, it sounds harsh. That's what Jesus gave. That's the first thing to notice, that you're having three times three affirmations of authority about this process. But can I notice this number two? I want to, just me, immediately jump from step one to output number last. If your brother sins against you, then you treat him like a heathen and a tax collector. Oh, that means I can treat him with silence. I can treat him with distance. I can guilt him. I can put as much distance and as much animosity in that relationship as possible. And I can absolutely be as passive, aggressive, and petty as I want to because he's a heathen a tax collector. By the way, at the end of this process, understand this. Even Jesus treated the heathens and tax collectors with kindness, didn't he? Even Jesus had regard for those people and for their spiritual welfare. 
And yet if I look at this again, brothers and sisters, there are three, count them three, approaches that I have to try biblically before I ever even get to that. And by the way, this is not the desired result. I'm not giving myself just a license to treat somebody poorly. I'm interested in forgiveness and reconciliation because that's what God's interested in. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so he could treat us like heathens and tax collectors. That's not it. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If we have this hardened attitude towards somebody else, this ungodly attitude that says, I can just ignore that person and treat that person like a heathen and tax collector, then brothers and sisters, we need to repent because that's not forgiveness at all. And there's no part of forgiveness that's ever going to worm its way into our lives if that's the way that we're going to behave. Notice then. Now that we've got the flow of forgiveness, let's talk about some facts of forgiveness based upon what Peter says next. Peter then goes and talks to Jesus, seemingly based upon what he's just said there in verses 15 to 20. And Peter says, Lord, let me ask you a question. How many times then should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? And understand the culture context based upon this. You know what the Jews said? Jews said, three strikes, you're out. You have... Wrong me once, I'll forgive you. Wrong me twice, I'll forgive you. Wrong me three times, I don't have to forgive you anymore like that. And what Peter is saying is, Lord, I've got a great idea. What if I double that plus one? You remember playing that game as kids you know, out there in the schoolyard? Well, how, 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 how can you count? I can count to infinity. Well, I can count to infinity plus one. Well, I can count to infinity plus two. And you begin to add, add those things. And Peter thinks he's being generous here. Let's forgive him seven times. Double what the proper amount is plus one, just so that I'm extra generous. And Jesus begins to say, no, it's not seven times. He says, I say 70 times seven. And if I begin to get out my calculator and begin to calculate 70 times seven, I have missed the point entirely. He's not talking about 490 times. He's talking about as many times as your brother asks you to forgive them and seeks forgiveness, you go and you forgive them, which tells me something. We are not the first people in history who have ever struggled with forgiveness. People throughout all the ages have struggled with forgiveness. Why? Because forgiveness is difficult. And what Jesus is teaching here, based upon Matthew, 15, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, but then in the parable to follow, is to say this, is that God's grace towards you, you personally, me, Andy Baker, is seen, or the, his grace is lack thereof, is seen in our lives by how we seek and how we offer and how we track forgiveness. You say something about God's grace based upon how you seek, how you offer, and how you track forgiveness. Oh, I followed that brother and he's wronged me once and I forgave him. I took the high road. Doesn't sound like the high road, does it, when you have somebody like that? Oh, I've forgiven him, and I've forgiven him more times than I could count, and I'm done forgiving him. What are you saying about God's grace based upon that? Haven't you sinned against God, and hasn't God's grace touched you? And that's the meaning of the parable. Here's a man who comes before the king, and he owes 10,000 talents. He owes 10,000 talents. I want you to imagine just for a moment, in the king's hand, he's got this ledger here, this blood red ledger where he says this is how much you owe me I see it right here you borrowed 10,000 talents from me some might estimate that it's in the billions of dollars 
And as the king is holding on to that, the man looks at that and he realizes that's his death sentence. Because as he falls down before the king and he says, Lord, have mercy with me. Give me time and I'll pay back everything that I've owed. The king has got this right, every right to cast him into the debtor's prison, which is really kind of a funny concept whenever you think about it. Because if you send a man to prison, you know how much he's going to be able to pay off based upon that? Not a single penny. And how much his family, especially when they learn, how much does he owe? Oh, 10,000 talents. Oh, yeah, I wish I could help out with that. There is an insurmountable debt that that man could never pay, and that king holds it in his hand. And yet, if that man has no ability to pay, if he has no desire to pay, if he even has no inclination to pay, that king, for all intents and purposes, is holding a debt that's not to be collected, that's not able to be collected. And so the question becomes, how does king handle a debt that he can't collect on? You see, the impetus of forgiveness. Forgiveness is really the only way forward. Why? Because he can hold that over that man's head every single day. He can bring that guy back in every single day and, and say, I've, I've still got it. Here it is. Here it is. You owe me this. You owe me this. You owe me this. And that's not going to do a single thing because that man still is not able to pay. Forgiveness is really the only way forward for that king to say, I'm going to show you compassion. I see that you're not able to pay. I release you of that debt. Wow. Who takes a loss? The king does. Who gets the benefit? That man does. Forgiveness is really the only way forward because... The only thing a king would be doing is just growing bitter and jaded and angry about that man if he continued to hold on to this. So, where do unforgiving servants land? The parable could have ended right there and it would have been happy, happy, joy, joy. The end, they all lived happily, to get, uh, happily ever after. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Immediately after, that man leaves out king has just forgiven him he showed him compassion and immediately after he leaves out of there you kind of have to wonder how deeply did that forgiveness ingrain on that man's mind can you think about having a brand new life like that you have been living with this thing over your head these 10,000 talents that you owe over your head for who knows maybe years and all of a sudden, that's gone. And the first thing you might start thinking about is, okay, how can I start saving up for retirement? Or how can I start using this money in a positive way? And as he begins to think about those things, I've got this guy over here that owes me a few hundred days wage. I've got to get that from him. And he goes out and finds one of his fellow servants. Now we're not even talking about greater to the lesser, the king to this man. Now we're talking about people that are on equal playing field. He goes out, begins to choke the man and say, pay back what you owe. Notice that the man, his fellow servant who he's got by the neck, uses almost the exact same words that he used just moments before in the presence of the king. Give me time and I will pay back everything that I owe. The man says, no way, Jose. He takes him at that time, and he throws him into prison. The king hears about that, and the king is deeply grieved. And the king calls that man back in and says, I don't understand. Why didn't you show compassion the way that I showed compassion to you? Don't you realize the massive amount of debt that you don't have to pay anymore? 
And this guy who owed you, certainly it's, it's not insignificant, but he owed you substantially less than what you had, and you're going to take him and you're going to throw him into prison? The king took him and delivered him over to the torturers and said, you're going to stay there until you pay back every cent that you owe. And the lesson here for us, ladies and gentlemen, is that unforgiving servants will always end up in prison. And this may not even be a prison that God has prepared. There's going to be an unforgiving servant that's going to end up in prison of unforgiveness where he is just as bitter and angry as he possibly can be. Where he's in a prison where every time he thinks of somebody, oh, it's like that, uh, I've, got to, I've got to be angry at this person. I've got to rehearse the wrong again and again and again. I've got to go back over it in my mind. Oh, I've got to remember to stay distant from that person. I don't want any reconciliation. I don't want any forgiveness. I'm not offering that. That's not on the table. And Jesus says, if that's the way that you're going to behave, then you understand that there's an end for the ungodly that God has prepared based upon your lack of forgiveness. But briefly this morning, it's not just enough to talk about the flow or the facts. We also need to talk about, because it's the title of the sermon, the freedom of forgiveness. If I choose to take this debt, this wrong that you have, or that I have against you, and I choose to lay it aside, to burn it up, and say, this is nothing that you owe me anymore. I forgive you. Notice some things that that's automatically going to do. It's going to show that we are not bound by debt anymore. Ephesians chapter 2 is a great passage to talk about what God did while we were still children of wrath there in the first three verses. God who is rich in mercy with, because of the great love with which he loved us. He took us and he made us children and he set us up to sit with Jesus in the heavenly places. And he would go on to say, by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Grace is a gift. Forgiveness is a gift. It's something that God has purposed through his son Jesus to give us the very best of heaven. And God says, here you go. Here's forgiveness of sins. I'm not holding these things over your head anymore. I'm taking that debt and I'm wiping it away because Jesus paid for that. I'm taking a loss personally. I'm taking it on myself. And as God sets that debt aside, we live our lives unencumbered by sin anymore. We're not bound by that debt. And as I offer forgiveness to fellow servants, that's all we are, fellow servants, what I'm doing is I'm saying I'm going to take the loss myself. I'm going to take the hurt that you inflicted, and I'm going to release you of that debt. I'm not bound by debt anymore. Because what I've just done is what my Heavenly Father's done. He's given me grace, He's offered me forgiveness, and now I'm giving grace and I'm offering forgiveness to somebody else because I see them through the eyes of my God. Notice the freedom of forgiveness. We are free to worship. You're there in the book of Matthew. Flip back to Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. As Jesus talks about the kingdom, coming kingdom, that's what Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is all about. Jesus says, in the context of worship, if you come and you offer your gift before the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Stop right there. 
So we go back to the flow of forgiveness back in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. He's talking about somebody who has the wrong. Okay? You've committed wrong against me. My first approach is to go and tell you your fault between me and you alone, right? But here's on the opposite side of the spectrum, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. He says, if you're offering your gift and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Oh, right. I hurt my brother in this respect and he, he's been wanting to talk to me. He's been wanting to, to visit with me about the, the hurt and the wrong that, that's been perpetrated. Or I know that this brother has hard feelings based upon something that maybe I don't know. Jesus says, if I think about my relationships and I realize that one of those relationships or many of those relationships are strained, you know what he says? He says, you leave your gift there at the altar and you go and first be reconciled to your brother. Reconciliation, Christian relationships in this context are more important than worship. Are you getting this? We come and we sit week after week, month after month, year after year, and maybe we're harboring unforgiveness in our heart, or maybe we know that somebody else is harboring unforgiveness against us, and we sit here week after week, month after month, year after year, and we expect that God is going to hear us. Jesus says, stop coming to worship. If that's your idea of how forgiveness works, stop coming to worship. It's not about that. It's about us collectively with one heart and one mind lifting up our souls and prayers to God and expecting that God is going to hear us and God looking at us and saying, you're harboring unforgiveness in your heart or you know that your brother's got something against you and you're not willing to make it right, stop worshiping. Stop it. But when you've stopped and you've made it right with somebody that needs to be made right with and they've offered you forgiveness, and you've been forgiven. Or maybe you've offered forgiveness and they've been forgiven. And you come and you sit down across the pew from that person with whom you were formerly at enmity and holding a debt. And you look at that person and say, I've released you. Let's worship God together. We have a deeper and a great appreciation for the grace that God has given us based upon the grace we show each other. Jesus says, you go and you make sure that you're reconciled to your brother. And then, then you come to worship. Then you come and offer your gift. Don't get it in reverse. And in fact, same chapter or same context, rather, Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Jesus would say, stop praying for forgiveness if you're going to be a person that's unwilling to offer forgiveness. Because if you don't forgive your brother, your heavenly father is not going to forgive you. And so every time you say, God, forgive me my sins, and then God looks down and sees a heart that's bitter, that's angry, that's judgmental, that's petty, that's avoiding a brother or sister, God says, I'm not going to forgive you. Stop praying for it if you're unwilling to offer it. This cuts all of us, doesn't it? We are free to be at peace. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 through 7, here's two ladies that labor alongside Paul, Euodia and Syntyche. Fine traveling is one name, accident is another. When fine traveling meets with an accident, that's what Christian relationships are about, isn't it? We're going along just fine, all of a sudden you do something that wrongs me or I do something that wrongs you, and all of a sudden we've, we've stopped. This is an opportunity to practice forgiveness and grace. But here's these two ladies, and Paul is reconciling, trying to bring them back into friendship. And he says, Syndicus, you, you fellow laborer, you guys need to help these ladies get along. 
She, maybe she's going over here and talking to these people over here and these, this person coming over here. Oh, did you hear how she wronged me? Oh, let me tell you something. I'm not talking to her. If it, and there's, there's division that's being created that's going to spoil the joy there in the Philippian church. And Paul says, rather than listening to these ladies, wise is the person that says, you need to go talk to her. Y'all need to work this out together. That's approach number one. That's entirely biblical, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. We just talked about that. And as she goes and she visits with her, there's a reconciliation that happens based upon the fact that every single one of us are people whose names are written in the book of life. That's Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3. But later on in the context, Paul would say, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good report, if there's anything virtuous, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The verse right above that talks about the difficulty that we face and letting the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When our minds are centered on what they ought to be centered on, and not on how people have wronged us and hurt us and continue to want to try and reopen that wound, I'm free to be at peace. That's a great amount of promise that God has said. What happens in the night when I begin to think and rehearse that wrong again, even though I've forgiven somebody, because this happens, doesn't it? That if there's somebody that's wronged me and I start thinking about those wrongs and thinking, oh, I'm, I'm angry at those person, wait a minute. God, I've forgiven that person. Help this debt that I've released that person of not be something that clouds my mind and my heart against this person. God, they're my Christian brother. They're my Christian sister. I love them. Give me peace about this because I release the debt like you've released my debt. You see, there's a great amount of peace that comes when I lay that debt down and I don't hold it over somebody else's head. And we're free to turn that remaining hurt over to God. God says you've tried to work it out. Even if that person is unwilling to receive you and even if that person is unwilling to forgive, I take that remaining hurt and say, God, I'm doing everything I can to try and help this person. Romans 12 says, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Depends on you. Not depends on them, depends on you. You make that choice. God, I'm going to cast my care upon you. I love this person. I want them to repent. I want them to change their mind and their heart with how they wronged me. But God, the minute they come... I'm going to be like that father that goes and meets that son. I want to embrace that Christian again. And I want to help them to understand that I still love them the way that you love me. I still want you to, them to understand how I'm forgiving them the way that you've forgiven me. There's a humility. And folks, that's where the start has to be is humility. And we are free when we've been wronged and when we've been hurt and when we've got those hurts to identify with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's amazing to me that God, even through difficulty and things that we wouldn't choose for ourselves, is able to glorify himself when his people are humble enough to have the mind of Christ. And even if the heathen tax collector after approach number three is the end result, hopefully there's three other chances for being reconciled with a brother or for thinking back to the flow of forgiveness. Even if that heathen and tax collector relationship is there, I can understand something more about the suffering of Jesus and his obedience even if the desired result is not reached. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be godly people and be people that are unforgiving. We cannot be godly people 
and be people that harbor ill will and anger and hatred and silence and all of those things that we talked about against them. Little children love one another. That's a conclusion of the Wednesday evening devotional I gave this past Wednesday night. Little children love one another. So what do you think? Starting off with Doug started with. Every time we hear Jesus say, what do you think? He's wanting to us to evaluate the truths of God. And as we say, what do you think? Do you agree with what's been said here today? Do you agree that it is the word of God and the counsel of Jesus Christ given by man, imperfect man as I am, to imperfect people to say we need to be more in the will of God? What do you think? Are we willing to do what it takes to be reconciled with our brothers and with our sisters? Are we willing to behave like people who have been touched by God's grace, affected by God's grace, transformed by God's grace? Or are we just content to say, if my brother sins against me, I'm just going to treat him like a heathen tax collector and circumvent the whole process of how God wants us to be reconciled in Jesus Christ? Friends, life's too short to hold bitter grudges and anger, and eternity is far too long to hold on to those things ourselves. Maybe you need help with that this morning, and maybe, just maybe, your heart's been touched by the message, convicted, pricked, and if we can help you in any way, please let us know about that. I want you to understand, if you are outside of Christ this morning, there is no forgiveness of sins except, except through the blood of Jesus, which you can contact this morning if you're ready. Let's stand and sing our invitation song.